It's kind of hard to follow that. I hope that video of Solomon's Temple helps to give you an idea of what it may have looked like. As I mentioned a few years ago, I think the cherubim inside uh, the Holy of Holies and on the walls and doors had those hipster beards and reflected more uh, Babylonian art than Egyptian, but we don't know. It could have been either one. But either way, I hope it helps you to visualize what Solomon's Temple may have looked like. And if you haven't signed up for our daily devotional that we email out Monday through Friday, sign up because on Tuesday I'm going to send you a link to a YouTube video that explains more of the Mosaic Tabernacle and Solomon's Temple so that you can understand what it was like. So you don't want to miss out on that. So sign up for our daily email devotional called The Vine that goes out. Now turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 7. And as you do that, I want to point out to you something that was not in that video. The pictures that we have seen about Solomon's temple, the video that we just watched about Solomon's temple, are what it might have looked like on day one after it was completed, which is what we'll see next week in 1 Kings chapter 8. It was all nice and clean. But as the dedication ceremony kicked off, and from every day after that, the temple would have been crowded with people and animals, and it would have been very noisy as animals kicked and screamed and squirmed as they were having their throats slit before they were offered as a sacrifice. And so understand this, the way to God is gory and horrible and gruesome, and messy, and nasty, and repulsive, and drippy, and bloody, and smelly. Some of the sacrifices would have given off the smell of a good barbecue, like the aroma of tri-tip. But there would also have been smells that weren't so pleasant, because death is smelly. And there would be flies everywhere. And there would be blood. Lots of blood. Lots and lots and lots and lots of blood. Worship at the temple was bloody. It was gruesome. Worship is bloody and gory because the way to peace with God centers around what is called substitutionary atonement. That simply means that something or someone dies in your place and sheds their blood in order to cover over and to wash away and to forgive your sins. God's wrath against sin, against our sin, is appeased through substitutionary atonement as blood is shed. That means that worship at the tabernacle, the Mosaic tabernacle, worship at Solomon's temple was bloody and quite frankly, pretty gross. It was pretty nasty. As Old Testament scholar Ralph Davis says when he describes atonement, he says readers should be aghast. The text says atonement is horrible. It is gory. Atonement is never nice, but always gruesome. We need to see this, for we easily fall into the trap of regarding atonement as merely a doctrine, a concept, an abstraction to be explained, a bit of theology to be analyzed, or, little better, to view it as a moving story to be replayed during Passion Week. But we should know better. 
Surely the Israelite worshiper realized this when he towed a young bull to the tabernacle and had to slit its throat, skin it, cut it in pieces, and wash the insides and legs. It was all mess and gore. From slicing the bull's throat in Leviticus 1 all the way to Calvary, God has always said that atonement is nasty and repulsive. Christians must be aware of becoming too refined, longing for a kinder, gentler faith. If we've grown too used to Golgotha, perhaps God's word can shock us back into truth. Atonement is a drippy, bloody, smelly business. The stench of death hangs heavy wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. The way to God is gory and horrible and gruesome and messy and nasty and repulsive and drippy and bloody and smelly. We saw several weeks ago that the gospel comes with a house key. And so this is what it looked like in that video for those who lived in ancient Israel and worshipped Yahweh at the tabernacle or at Solomon's temple. They could use the house key given to them by Yahweh to draw near and to enjoy communion with him through atonement. But it was bloody. It was gruesome. Blood had to be shed in order to get a house key. To be restored to and to enjoy fellowship with God, something repulsive has to happen. And that's what we'll see in 1 Kings 7 today. We'll see that one, Jesus shed his blood for all the bad things you do. And two, he's making all the sad things in your life come untrue. Worship at Solomon's temple. All the sacrifices, all the shed blood anticipated Jesus dying on the cross in our place. And all of the temple furnishings anticipated the day when Jesus would make everything sad come untrue. That's what the temple was pointing to and anticipating, a new Eden. That's why there are two cherubim. Guarding, if you will, the ark of God, the presence of the Lord. Because what happened when Adam and Eve were kicked out of Eden? There were cherubim there guarding the way back to God. Now, the way is open. Everything at the temple was pointing to this. All the stuff that we might find less exciting in this chapter was all anticipating Jesus dying for all the bad things that we do. And the hope that he will make everything sad come untrue. First Kings chapter 7 might become your favorite chapter in the Bible. All the things that we have already read and all the things that we're going to read about in First Kings 7, those things that might bore us, the gourds, the cups, the snuffers, the tongs, the lamps, the pomegranates, the lilies, all of these things reminded Israel that atonement was bloody and gruesome and nasty. It reminded them that sinners could return to Eden once again and that the way to God was open. That sinners, wrecked by the fall, wrecked by Adam's sin, could come and enjoy God through repulsive substitutionary atonement, through blood, through nasty stuff. Now, since you're dying to know, let me show you where I'm getting all that. First Kings chapter 7. Look 
at verse 23 and hear the word of the Lord. Then he made the sea of cast metal. It was round, 10 cubits from brim to brim and five cubits high and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. Under its brim were gourds for 10 cubits, compassing the sea all around. The gourds were in two rows, cast with it when it was cast. It stood on 12 oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea was set on them, and all their rear parts were inward. Its thickness was a hand breadth, and its brim was made like the brim of a cup, like the flower of a lily. It held 2,000 baths. So again, we have more elaborate detail here on the temple. Just what you wanted for your quiet time, right? I mean, who doesn't want to read about a giant bathtub that rested on the backsides of 12 bulls during their devotionals? I know it doesn't necessarily stir us up and give us goosebumps, but it must have given the author of 1 Kings the warm fuzzies because he spends so many verses describing in detail even more aspects of Solomon's temple. How exciting, right? So let's look at a few of these, and then we'll squeeze the theology out of the text and see Jesus all over the place. First, we're going to look at the sea of cast metal. Verses 23 to 26 describe the sea of cast metal, which was this gigantic bathtub-like thing that the priests would use to get water from to wash up, which they needed to do all the time due to all of the blood and the ashes from the sacrifices. This mammoth creation would have held 12,000 gallons of water. It rested upon these 12 bulls and had decorations all around its rim. It was 15 feet in diameter, 7 feet high, and priests would draw water from this thing they called the sea, and they would fill up these 10 bronze stands with basins, which were kind of like portable kitchen sinks, which we'll look at in a moment. But why do they call this gigantic bathtub-like thing the sea? Well, in order to answer this question, we have to understand the ancient Near Eastern mindset. Other religions in the ancient Near East, as well as the nation of Israel, believed that the oceans, they believed that the sea was a chaotic, uncontrollable force. The sea was a place of evil. Because sometimes your friends went out in boats to go fishing, and they never returned. Boats would sink, and people would drown. And so the sea was a place of chaos that could not be controlled, and therefore it became a symbol of evil and darkness. In the ancient Near East, the sea was a symbol of evil and darkness. And that's why... When Jesus controls the sea in the Gospels and he makes the winds and the waves stop, the disciples cannot believe their eyes. They are in shock because Jesus has power over the chaotic forces of evil symbolized by the sea. And so by making this gigantic water basin and calling it the sea, they are emphasizing that Yahweh is sovereign over the chaotic sea, over evil, over all the forces of chaos in this world. The Lord alone calms the sea and controls it and contains it. And that's why Revelation 21.1 says, And the sea was no more. 
When John records this, he's using apocalyptic imagery, which is what the book of Revelation is. And John does not mean, get this, John does not mean that there will not be oceans or beaches on the new earth. When John says, and the sea was no more, he means that the chaotic forces of evil are gone forever and not the oceans. Thank God, right? I don't want heaven with no oceans. God made the oceans. So take heart, beach lovers. Take heart, surfers and scuba divers and sailors and deep sea fishermen. Take heart because there will be oceans and beaches for us to enjoy on the new earth. God made the seas and all that are in them. And the last time I read Genesis, which was a few weeks ago, God called them good. God means for you and me to enjoy the ocean, to enjoy the beach, both in this life and in the next. One day, all evil will be gone for good. That's John's point in Revelation 21.1 when he says, and the sea was no more. It's apocalyptic imagery. And that's why this gigantic bathtub-like thing at the temple was called the sea to emphasize that the Lord contains and controls all of the chaotic forces of this world and one day they will all vanish. One day there will be no more abuse in all its many forms. No more abuse in the church one day. No more abortions one day. No more sin. No more evil. And who doesn't need that reminder often? Who doesn't need to be reminded often that the devil is on a leash, if you will, to use the proverbial expression, that he's not in control and that the evil powers in governments aren't in control? When you went to worship Yahweh at the temple and you saw a priest washing off their hands and washing off all the utensils that they used in the sacrifices and you saw water being drawn from that gigantic bathtub thing, the sea, you were being reminded that evil men do not control this world. Evil men do not rule this world. Governments do not rule this world. When you saw those 12 bulls holding up the sea with their backsides, you were being reminded that Yahweh, your God, is all-powerful and that one day he would make everything sad come untrue. One day he would make all things new. One day he would right every wrong. Corporate worship should remind you that Jesus shed his blood for all the bad things you do and he's making all the sad things in your life come untrue. Corporate worship should remind you of that. That's why the cross is front and center here to remind us, as Colossians 1 says, that Jesus is reconciling all things in this world through his blood through the cross. That's what you should be reminded of when you come into the sanctuary. Jesus 
shed his blood for all the bad things you do, which is a lot and which is all the time, by the way. And two, he's making all the sad things in your life that bring you pain and heartache and sorrow and grief, he's going to make them come untrue one day. And who doesn't need that reminder every week when you come to church? That Jesus died a repulsive death for all the repulsive things that you do. And that Jesus is making all things new. That one day, everything sad in your life will come untrue. All those things that you want to forget, the bad things you've done, the bad things that have been done to you that weigh you down, that are there on your mind when you wake up in the middle of the night, first thing when you wake up in the morning, you're thinking about them right now. You can't get rid of these bad things that you've done or said or things that have been done to you. You want that memory gone. One day Jesus is going to make all of that disappear from your memory. You'll still know you're a sinner because you'll be worshiping the lamb that was slain. And you'll ask, why was the lamb slain? Because I'm a sinner. But all those painful memories, things that have been done for you, to you, will be gone. That's what worshipers were reminded of every week as they saw this giant bathtub sitting on the backsides of 12 bulls. Who speaks to his people through a giant bathtub resting on the backsides of 12 bulls? Jesus does. I told you he's not boring. And so the sea, though practical for washing up after a day of bloody sacrifices, the sea, that gigantic bathtub thing, also served as a reminder that one day all evil will be done away with forever. Something that you might need to be reminded of today. I mean, who knew that a seemingly boring chapter could reassure your heart? And so can a list of utensils that were used at the temple. Even a few dishes and ten portable kitchen sinks can remind you of how good Jesus is. Look at verse 27. He also made the ten stands of bronze. Each stand was four cubits long, four cubits wide, and three cubits high. This was the construction of the stands. They had panels, and the panels were set in the frames. And on the panels that were set in the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim. On the frames, both above and below the lions and oxen, there were wreaths of beveled work. Moreover, each stand had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze, and at the four corners were supports for a basin. The supports were cast with wreaths at the side of each. Its opening was within a crown that projected upward one cubit. Its opening was round as a pedestal is made, a cubit and a half deep. At its opening there were carvings, and its panels were square, not round, and the four wheels were underneath the panels. The axles of the wheels were of one piece with the stands, and the height of a wheel was a cubit and a half. The wheels were made like a chariot wheel. Their axles, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all cast. There were four supports at the four corners of each stand. The supports were of one piece with the stands. And on the top of the stand, there was a round band, half a cubit high. And on the top of the stand, its stays and its panels were of one piece with it. And on the surfaces of its stays and on its panels, he carved cherubim, lions, and palm trees, according to the space of each, with wreaths all around. After this manner, he made the ten stands. All of them were cast alike of the same measure and the same form. 
And he made 10 basins of bronze. Each basin held 40 baths. Each basin measured four cubits. And there was a basin for each of the 10 stands. And he set the stands, five on the south side of the house and five on the north side of the house. And he set the sea at the southeast corner of the house. Hiram also made the pots, the shovels, and the basins. So Hiram finished all the work that he did for King Solomon on the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowls of the capitals that were on top of the pillars, and the two lattice works to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on top of the pillars, and the 400 pomegranates for the two lattice works. Two rows of pomegranates for each lattice work to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the pillars. The ten stands and the ten basins on the stands and the one sea, and the twelve oxen underneath the sea. Now the pots, the shovels, and the basins, all these vessels in the house of the Lord, which Hiram made for King Solomon, were of burnished bronze. In the plain of the Jordan the king cast them, in the clay ground between Succoth and Zarethan. And Solomon left all the vessels unweighed, because there were so many of them, the weight of the bronze was not ascertained. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table for the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the south side and five on the north before the inner sanctuary, the flowers, the lamps, and the tongs of gold, the cups, snuffers, basins, dishes for incense, and fire pans of pure gold, and the sockets of gold for the doors of the innermost part of the house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the nave of the temple. Thus, all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated the silver, the gold, and the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Did you catch the excitement there? The excitement with which these words were recorded? The author of First Kings may have, may have maybe had to get a new pen to write with because he uses up so much ink telling us about all this stuff, the bronze basins, the snuffers, and no wonder the author of 1 Kings wrote it down with excited detail. This is what the Lord commanded. And these utensils were needed to enjoy fellowship with Yahweh. They seem like a boring list of dishes and snuffers and cups and basins. But this list meant that sinners could enjoy fellowship with the holy God who came to live among them. And so we have the ten bronze stands and the ten bronze basins. Verses 27 to 51 describe the stands and the basins that were used to wash all the utensils that were used in the sacrifices. These basins surrounded the walls of the temple and they were handcrafted with these elaborate designs that included lions and oxen and those weird hipster bearded creatures, the cherubim. But why? Why decorate the kitchen sink in such an elaborate way? Because if you haven't figured out yet, God is not boring. Jesus could have just had some aluminum tubs out there for the priests to use to wash their hands and wash the utensils, but he chose to deck them out. And these ten bronze basins had wheels, so they were like portable kitchen sinks that they could move throughout the temple courtyard. And they were used to wash off all the utensils and all the blood and all the ash and all the dirt. And yet, they were so elaborate. Even the kitchen sinks 
in the temple were elaborate and spoke to God's people. I mean, think about that. Who speaks to his people through kitchen sinks? Yahweh does. Who speaks to his people through doing the dishes? Jesus does. I told you he's not boring. Portable kitchen sinks meant that blood was being shed so that sinners could draw near to the Lord as he presented himself in all of his glory. Portable kitchen sinks meant that sinners could celebrate and enjoy their forgiveness through substitutionary atonement. And then the priest would have to do all the dishes and clean up. It may seem weird to us, but this is the gospel according to Solomon. The priest had to clean up because the way to God was glory and horrible and gruesome and messy and nasty and repulsive and drippy and bloody and smelly. And so what was the Lord saying to his people through these portable kitchen sinks? What was he saying to his people through all the utensils that were used in worship? I mean, why all of the water? Why 10 portable kitchen sinks on wheels? Why the giant water tank called the sea? Answer, because atonement is bloody. Because forgiveness costs something or someone their life. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Why all the water? Because there's so much blood. Why all the water? Because atonement is bloody. The priest and the utensils had to get cleaned up because there was so much blood everywhere. Why all the blood? Because God is holy. Because he demands perfection from every single one of us. And none of us can be perfect. Listen, we're not going to downplay sin in this church. We're going to let the law of God do its work and expose us as sinners. We're going to call sin, sin. We've had people leave this church because we called them sinners. We've had people leave and tell us that they were leaving because we called their precious little child a sinner in Sunday school class. Well, I'm sorry, sugar booger, but your precious little angel is a sinner. We will not be soft on sin in this church because God is not soft on sin. Jesus got dirty with our sins and shed his real blood for us. So we're not going to be soft on sin. Sin is repulsive to God, and it should be repulsive to us. And that's why we talk about forgiveness all the time here at Grace. Because that's why Jesus came, to die in our place for our repulsive sin. Just because we talk about the gospel all the time, and celebrate forgiveness all the time, does not mean that we are soft on sin. I hear that a lot. Talk about the gospel all the time. Forgiveness, what about obedience? How does obedience come when you talk about the gospel all the time? Just because we talk about the gospel all the time and celebrate forgiveness all the time does not mean that we're soft on sin. 
We talk about the gospel all the time because God is not soft on sin because it costs Jesus his life to deal with our repulsive sin. And we're happy about that. I don't know about you, but I'm glad Jesus died for my sin. So I'm going to talk about him all the time and I want all the sermons to be about him because that makes me happy. I get joy out of the fact that Jesus shed his blood for my sin. So I'm going to talk about him all the time. And if you've got a problem with that, take it up with him. So the reason there's so much water at the temple is because there's so much blood at the temple. And the reason there's so much blood at the temple is because God is holy and we are sinners and the only way that we can make it back to Eden is through blood. Why all the blood? Because we are sinners and we deserve to die. But God in his great mercy because he wants to be near us has made a way possible. And the way to God is gory and horrible and gruesome and messy and nasty and repulsive and drippy and bloody and smelly. And so every day the priests were covered in blood and they reeked of burning flesh. And on and on, day after day, these sacrifices went. And still, there was no sacrifice that was sufficient to remove sin, remove guilt, and perfect the worshiper. Hebrews 4.10 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is until Jesus came. Jesus, as our great high priest, as the Lamb of God, offered himself as the final sacrifice for our sins. And so the good news of the gospel is that Jesus shed his blood for all the bad things you do and He's making all the sad things in your life come untrue. Everything at the temple was telling sinners that the gospel comes with the house key, that Jesus can't get close enough to his people, that we are welcome in God's presence through substitutionary atonement. From the sea to the utensils to the bronze stands that function like portable kitchen sinks, all of it was pointing to Jesus and inviting sinners into God's presence. Everything and the kitchen sink were telling us that the gospel comes with the house key. That the way to God was gory and horrible and gruesome and messy and nasty and repulsive and drippy and bloody and smelly. But there's even more going on in the text here. We have all these designs. We have all this artistry. Pomegranates, lilies, bulls, lions, cherubim, wreaths, palm trees, flowers. What do all of the artistic designs speak of? What are they telling us about Jesus? Why so much ink spilled in these verses about pomegranates and lilies and bulls and lions and wreaths and palm flowers, palm trees and flowers? All of the detail on the bronze stands and basins are suggesting to the worshiper that Solomon's temple was like a new creation, a new Eden, if you will. Old Testament scholar Alan Ross says, everything here reminded the people that this was a special place, a new creation of God in a world that was corrupt and contaminated. This was his other Eden, the place where heaven and earth met, the earthly replica of the heavenly sanctuary of God. But this earthly dwelling place of God was also the revelation of the new order. The emblems of cherubs told of the great company of angels that surround the throne of God in glory from the creation of the world that they have never ceased to praise him for creation. This kingdom of God on earth was a place where the people of God could come to find refuge from the world outside, to find peace, security, and wholeness 
It was, in every sense of the word, a sanctuary. All of the temple decorations were reminiscent of the paradise setting of the Garden of Eden where Yahweh first made his presence known and where man had fellowship with him before sin, repulsive sin, changed all this. The temple then became a restored Eden that looked forward to and anticipated a final paradise restored, the new heavens and new earth. The temple was a place of refuge from the world outside. It was a place where you could find peace, where you could feel safe, a place of shalom, wholeness. Everything at the temple reminded every worshiper about grace. Every utensil, every snuffer, every tong, every cup, every dish, every pan reminded God's people that they were welcome in his presence, that they could come through substitutionary sacrifice. But only those who came by faith were forgiven. You could go through the motions, have it not be real. And only those who flee to Jesus and trust in his life, death, and resurrection will be spared from eternity in hell. Maybe you haven't fled to Jesus yet. Today would be a great day to be welcomed into God's family. It would be a great day. Today would be a great day to turn from living for you and come home to Jesus and be welcomed with open arms to turn from living in rebellion against God and open the empty hands of faith and trust that he died a repulsive death for your repulsive sins and then to receive the forgiveness of sins and receive eternal life. It's true. You are a mess. But Jesus will have you. You are a rebel. But Jesus will have you. You are dirty and quite frankly, you are repulsive. But Jesus will have you. And he'll clean you up and wash you and welcome you at his table. What are you waiting for? Come to Jesus today and say, I need your blood. I need your righteousness. I need you to blot out my sins. I am needy. God could have just commanded us to worship him from afar and not shown up at the temple. God could have just commanded us to worship. But instead... He woos us with his tender love. What a God. Every dish covered in blood that was washed off in those portable kitchen sinks was God wooing his people with his tender love. Every snuffer used, every lamp that was lit, every fire pan with its ashes dumped out, all of that was God wooing his people with his tender love to come and worship and enjoy him. And maybe you already are a child of God, but you've been running away from him. And you know you have. Hey, and listen, we all do it from time to time, right? We all do it. Well, guess what? When we return, when we return to God, how do we find him? We find him waiting on us and smiling. He's smiling when we return. We wonder where there's any hope for us because of our many failures. And so we slowly return and we find his arms are wide open to receive us. Amazing. And that was worship at the temple. God was waiting for his people with arms open wide and smiling. This is the gospel. Believe it, y'all. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, the repulsive. And that's you And that's me and that's us. 
He left the glory and beauty of heaven and came to earth and he endured the brutality of the cross. Substitutionary atonement. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Like those animals at Solomon's temple, Jesus kicked and convulsed and screamed as he endured the cross. Jesus experienced the gory, horrible, gruesome, messy, nasty, repulsive, drippy, bloody, and smelly parts of atonement to bring you and me back to God. Jesus shed his blood for all the bad things you do. And he's making all the sad things in your life come untrue. All. All the things that you've done all the things that have been done to you. You know, I went and saw the movie Unplanned last week. I encourage you to do that. It's pretty graphic, pretty heavy. So if you're going to take a teenager, talk to someone who's seen it first. But it's a tr- based on a true story about Abby Johnson who used to work for Planned Parenthood and saw an abortion and just changed her life around. So I just, maybe someone here has had an abortion. And you're a Christian. You are forgiven. Jesus doesn't see that when he sees you. Maybe you're here today and you've had a miscarriage and you've suffered that loss. All the sad things that Jesus is making come true, untrue in your life apply to that. And so mothers and fathers who may have experienced abortion or a miscarriage, because of Jesus, you're going to walk with your child again on the new earth, hand in hand, down the beach, showing them the ocean. So take comfort in that today. He's making all the sad things in your life come untrue. He's making all things new even now. And so the sin that you just can't seem to shake, the sin that you can't forget, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus can't remember it thing that has been done to you or that you've done that you can't forget. Jesus can't remember. Let's close with something out of the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a summary of the book of Isaiah. A love letter from God to his people, to us. The chapter is titled Operation No More Tears. Dear little flock, you're all wandering away from me like sheep in an open field. You have always been running away from me and now you're lost and you can't find your way back. But I can't stop loving you. I will come to find you. So I'm sending you a shepherd to look after you and love you, to carry you home to me. You've been stumbling around like people in a dark room, but into the darkness a bright light will shine. It will chase away all the shadows like sunshine. The little baby will be born, royal son. His mommy will be a young girl who doesn't have a husband. His name will be Emmanuel, which means God has come to live with us. He is one of King David's children's children's children, the Prince of Peace. Yes, someone is going to come and rescue you, but he won't be who anyone expects. He will be a king, but he won't live in a palace, and he won't have lots of money. He will be poor, and he will be a servant, but this king will heal the whole world. He will be a hero. He will fight for his people and rescue them from their enemies. But he won't have big armies and he won't fight with swords. He will make the blind see. He will make the lame leap like a deer. He will make everything the way it was always meant to be. 
but people will hate him and they won't listen to him. He will be like a lamb. He will suffer and die. It's the secret rescue plan we made from before the beginning of the world. It's the only way to get you back. But he won't stay dead. I will make him alive again. And one day, when he comes back to rule forever, the mountains and trees will dance and sing for joy. The earth will shout out loud. His fame will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Everything sad will come untrue. Even death is going to die. And he will wipe away every tear from every eye. Yes, the rescuer will come. Look for him, watch for him, wait for him. He will come, I promise. Love God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you woo us with your tender love. It's amazing, but you do. And that makes us want to obey. And that makes us want to follow you and to be transformed because of your overwhelming kindness to us. So keep us a church that just keeps talking about your son because the gospel is all we need here, Lord. It's foolishness to the world, but it's the wisdom of God. Help us to believe it by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.